0: I'm Tavis Smiley. Glad to have you with us in this hour. We thank Roseanne Cash for that uh, wonderful conversation. And I am delighted uh, about the next conversation we're about to uh, jumpstart right about now in a month of black history uh, where we have witnessed several achievements in modern black history. From Beyonce becoming the most decorated Grammy winner to LeBron passing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to the first two black quarterbacks to ever face each other in a Super Bowl yesterday, and for that matter, uh, Patrick Mahomes now becomes the first black quarterback to win two Super Bowls. We're seeing history all around us every day, and we are, of course, reveling in these collective uh, triumphs uh, for our people. Yet when we take a slight step back, when we take a slight step back outside the realm of of, uh, sports and entertainment to observe the black experience that everyday black folk might have, as Sly Stone would put it, uh, we still see the remnants of slavery and Jim Crow and Jane Crow and white supremacy evidenced by recent police brutality attempts to eradicate uh, black history in schools, grave disparities in black finances and health, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Pleased to be joined now by a winning historian and Ivy League professor, Harvard to be exact, Dr. Khalil Gibran Muhammad, uh, for a conversation about uh, the condemnation of blackness. That's his phrase, and I love it the condemnation of blackness and um, how our past continues to inform our present experiences. Uh, Professor, I am honored to be in dialogue. It's been too long, my friend. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Tavis. It's good to hear your voice and good to be on the show. It's good to hear your voice, Ken. It's been too long, as I said, but I'm just delighted to be reunited with two old friends in this hour, Roseanne Cash a few moments ago, uh, Khalil Gibran Muhammad right about now, uh, for this conversation about the condemnation of blackness. You're so brilliant, brother. I don't need to color this much. Uh, I've tried to to tee this thing up as nicely as I could. I'm just going to pass the mic and let you take it away. What do you make of all that I've laid out in terms of the history, the black history that we're witnessing literally it seems in real time every day in this month of black history. Uh, And yet, on the other hand, you step back, you see the continuing condemnation of blackness. I ain't got to say much more than that. Take it away, my man. Sure. Well, listen, we've always used symbolism of black success to cover
1: the realities that we live in a deeply unequal society, and black people have borne the greatest brunt of that inequality. The truth is that as the Country gets browner and blacker going into the future, there will be even more powerful symbols of black and brown success paraded before our television viewing eyes. Trotted out in electoral campaigns or even being responsible for an all black police force as a black female police chief. Mm. These are things that actually will become more complicated, more nuanced. It's not an accident that when Donald Trump ran for re election in 2020, his support from the black community went from 8% to 12%. That's a 50% increase in black people supporting Donald Trump. It's a head scratcher in so many ways, but it shows you that proximity to power. Has always been a symbolic force to uphold white supremacy.
0: Mm. Um, let me just go right at it then. What do you make in 2023 in, in real time of these African American first? I don't want to color the question much more. I got my own take, it, take on it, but I want to hear yours. What do you make of these African American first in every field of human endeavor in 2023?
1: Well, I wrote – this is a great question, Tavis. I wrote uh, a powerful, uh, if I might say so myself, (laughs) uh, op-ed in (laughs) in the New York Times back in 2017 when our first black president was stepping down. Mm -hmm. And I said that that represented to me the end of an era of assimilation. And end of fifty years going back to the civil rights period, to the end of the Obama term, of seeing black people move into the highest positions of power and leadership. And there was no more powerful assembled than Barack Obama, both because of his genius, his excellence, his propriety in office. The man was scandal free. He was you know, he, he literally rose to the occasion in every way possible. Mm-hmm. And yet When we look underneath the hood of what was happening in that country, on one hand, we were not focused systemically on inequality and racism, and on the other hand, uh, a, a white lash of unrepentant white supremacy was just bubbling to the surface that then produced Donald Trump, and now we have, you know, the echoes of this metastasizing across the country in state legislative houses, and most especially in Florida. Mm -hmm. So we have to get past this idea that simply being a black first in office is sufficient to changing the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. In so many ways, as James Baldwin described 50 years ago, the price of the ticket to access to power was assimilation and to go along.
0: Yep, no doubt about it. Um, are you saying, then, that when it comes to Black First, that we're still in a moment where symbolism is trumping substance, or is that putting too much on it?
1: No, that's exactly what I'm saying. And the the, the thing is, we as black people have a choice to not accept that trade. It doesn't mean that you don't you don't accept the job, the middle management job, or even the, the first opportunity. It just means that when you have a seat at the table, make sure your people aren't on the menu.
0: Mm. Um. I'm thinking of all these persons, uh, some of them well-known and quite famous, who I'm not going to call names and out anybody today, but I'm thinking of all kinds of folk, to your point about Obama, who was saying when he got elected that what this means, what his election means is that black folk can do anything. That's what it means, mm-hmm. that we can do anything. And I thought they went a little too far afield with this notion of black faces in high places. Um, But talk to me about what you'd say, and what you did in fact say to those persons who suggested that his being there meant that black folk could do anything. We just got to pull up our, you know, pull ourselves up and, and get to work. Well, here's the thing. It's a lottery ticket and it's
1: not that complicated. Uh, anybody can play the lottery and anybody can win, but that doesn't mean that that's a recipe for success. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's there's only been 45 uh, presidents, uh, I guess 46, uh, counting uh, Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. So I mean, so the idea that anybody can be president is is as foolish a notion as any white person waking up and saying I'm going to be president one day. Mm-hmm. So we have to know the difference between our aspiration and inspiring messages and what we all should recognize is the life and death necessity of civic and political education we ought to be teaching our children both in our schools in our homes and out of school that. We live in a society that was built on inequality, and black people were brought here to bear the brunt of that inequality, produce opportunity for other people. Now that some of us get to participate in that opportunity is not going to change the dynamics of that power inequality. If we want different power arrangements, we actually have to change the rules.
0: And what about that notion that his election alone uh, was going to usher us into a post-racial era?
1: Yeah, well, just the opposite happened. It, it ushered us into a white supremacist era. Um, I mean, this is not a critique of Obama himself. Mm-hmm. I think, as an individual, he was a centrist. He told us he was a centrist, and he had a stellar record as a centrist. That being said, he isn't responsible for the white lash that came with it. Mm-hmm. And the irony that the terms of that backlash against him—that he was a radical socialist, white hating person is part of the, the recent history of misinformation and disinformation that has only grown worse since he left office.
0: Hmm. One other question about Obama, then I want to spend the rest of our time talking about, um, as we are already uh, in in a variety of ways, uh, this notion of the condemnation of blackness. This is, of course, the title of your book um, from some years ago, The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime and the Making of Modern Urban America. And I want to get uh, Professor Khalil uh, uh, Gibran Muhammad's take on the ways in which in real time, uh, in this space, in this time, in late modernity, we see. Uh, continuing examples of the condemnation of our blackness. Before I do that, though, um, one final question I said on Obama. What what do you think we learn? What do you hope we uh, learn, Professor, about this notion of green screening people? And for those who don't know what that term means, if you're on television and you're standing in front of what we call a green screen, uh, they can put anything on that green screen. I can put the KBLA logo. I can put Uh, The skyline of New York, I can put anything, they can technologically uh, put anything on a green screen behind me and make it appear uh, that I am anywhere or doing anything that I want to appear to be doing. And in some ways, um, I think we green screened Barack Obama. What do you think we should have and you hope we learned from doing that?
1: Well, I think we have to be clear about our values and we have to change the political marketplace that keeps solving for what white people will tolerate. I mean, I'll be the first person to recognize that in a zero-sum political contest between a racist Republican Party and a a dithering Democratic Party, you are... Constantly choosing between the lesser of two evils. But that doesn't mean that the, at the local level we can begin to build grassroots political parties that actually speak to the values of people. And I'll just cite the Working Families Party has done just this. Now they're still running Democrats, but they're running Democrats who actually have values that are more about justice and equality and equity that we actually need to solve for the systemic problems that face black communities.
0: Mm. Khalil Gibran Muhammad is the Ford Foundation Professor of History, Race, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. He directs the Institutional Anti-Racism and Accountability Project and is the former director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, uh, Division of the New York Public Library, and the world's leading library and archive of global black history, one of my favorite uh, archives in the world. And before leaving the Schomburg Center, he was a a professor at a school uh, called Indiana University, uh, <laughs> and one of his graduates is a guy named Tavis Smiley. But I digress on that. More with uh, Professor <laughs> Khalil Gibral Muhammad when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tabby Smiley at the top of the hour. Uh, Les Brown continues, well, the motivator Les Brown continues his month-long radio residency exclusively on KBLA Talk 1580. He's the first one to Uh, take over uh, our radio residency here for the month, and uh, we chose the month of February for obvious reasons, so Les Brown's program. Uh, You've got to be hungry with Les Brown uh, at the top of the hour. We continue now our conversation in this hour with Harvard's Dr. Khalil Gibran Muhammad, uh, who also has a podcast called Some of My Friends Are. I love the title. Uh, Tell me, Khalil, about the podcast and what you're addressing there regularly.
1: Sure. So some of my best friends are is a podcast with my best friend growing up. He co hosted with me. We take on all of these issues of progressive issues, race, racism. And we talk to really smart people sometimes, but sometimes we just talk about our own childhood, the things that we were taught, which often was misinformation, and the ways as adults. He's a journalist. I'm a historian. We make sense of the absurdities of this country.
0: Yep. Speaking of the absurdities of this country, what do you make of that phrase? Every time I hear it, I just chuckle. Uh, Some (laughs) some of my best friends are. uh, (laughs) Unpack that phrase for me as you see it, Professor.
1: That's right. So the, the name of the show is that, with a dot, 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 mm-hmm. which means that mostly people try to use their individual goodness and the example of a personal relationship as cover for being silent in the face of these systemic inequities. So I have a black friend. I can't be racist. I have a mm-hmm. trans friend. I can't be transphobic. You just fill in the blank, and it's a way in which people have been socialized to think that these problems are individual choices and not structural.
0: Love the name, love the podcast. Some of my best friends are dot dot dot. That's right. <laughs> co-hosted <laughs> by our guest in this hour, Dr. Khalil Jabr Muhammad. Let me move uh, swiftly now, watching my time here, um, to the issue that I want to uh, spend the rest of our time sort of unpacking here, letting you unpack, and that is this notion of the condemnation of blackness. Um, it's a book you wrote, you know, some years ago. But I wanted to just check in with you, as I do oftentimes on this program, check in with authors who uh, penned books some years ago to see where they think we are on the issues they raised then uh, versus now. So when you think about this notion of the condemnation of blackness in a late modernity context, you think what?
1: Well, I think that the basic critique that the great social scientists and civil rights activists an anti-racist warrior W.E.B. Du Bois said, which was inspiration for that book, he said that essentially white people can do whatever they want in this world, but if a black person does it, then the condemnation of the world rains down on them. Mm. And so here we are still seeing the dualities and the double standards, you know, we've lived through an opioid crisis that was only in its infancy when I first published Condemnation of Blackness in 2010. Ten years later, billions of dollars have been doled out to solve this problem for white Americans, to keep them out of prison, to save their lives. And yet we are still living with the choices during the crack epidemic of the 1980s into the 1990s of mass incarceration that we have system operators and actors today who are still in denial about what that set of policies were and the consequences on black people that are still with us today. I'm
0: going to ask you this question in two or three different forms. Let me start with this first form. Um, What does the continuing condemnation of blackness in 2023 and beyond, likely, say about our democracy first?
1: Yeah, well, (laughs) Mm -hmm. well, I mean, it's just unbelievable. I wrote that book you know, again, 10 years ago or so, and I was trying to make room for a book that most people were like, why are you even talking about race anymore? And here, in the wake of the January 6th insurrection of white supremacists and white nationalists who put together a scaffold in, on the uh, National Mall to potentially lynch Mike Pence or to run through the corridors of the Capitol with a Confederate flag Speak precisely to the cyclical nature of racism that has never been uprooted from this country. And so our democracy, ironically enough, is teetering on the verge of collapsing. And I will say this very clearly, precisely because there are potentially more white people today who are unwilling to accept systemic racism as the cost of American democracy. If these white people are basically saying we're not going to accept that, then the other white folks are saying, well, we don't want a democracy at all.
0: Mm. So I just asked a moment ago what uh, the continuing condemnation of blackness means or says about our democracy when we come forward. What does it say? about the state of black life in america that answer and a bit more when we come forward with dr khalil jabron muhammad only on kbla talk 1580. Now, right now, indeed right now. it does with harvard's dr khalil jabron muhammad um uh, we were talking a moment ago about the continuing condemnation of blackness and what it says about the uh, the fragile state of our democracy uh my next iteration uh is what the condemnation of blackness in 2023 says about black folks specifically professor
1: Yeah, well, I think we are at a moment where the traditions of organizing in our community are as important as they've ever been. And so on one hand, I hope that we see more of it in places like Florida and Texas where uh, just talking about black life is becoming increasingly illegal and subject to censorship. On another hand, the celebrations of black excellence like Beyonce's, you know, outstanding latest album and her continued reign over the Grammys is evidence that she and her husband are committed to telling our stories and lifting them up as well as speaking truth to power. And at the same time, the condemnation of blackness has also had an underbelly where internalized racism like the kind we saw play out in The Killing of Tyree Nichols is still a problem that we have to uproot from our community.
0: That's the third and final iteration of the question I want to pose now, which is what the continuing condemnation of blackness says about the future.
1: Well, listen, we 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 have been here before, but that doesn't mean that it's any easier to solve for these problems today as they ever were. And as I started this conversation about the choices that we have to make in light of access, more and more black people will be given a little bit of access to power And what they do with that power will have everything to do with our future. I was in Johannesburg, South Africa, this fall back in November. And I have to tell you, seeing our black brothers there in power, the ANC, and the tragedy of the ongoing effects of apartheid, Leaves me with tremendous worry that even as more and more of us take the reins of power, we may not be able to solve for the impact of racial capitalism as it affects the world today.
0: So to that point, how then, um, given what you're seeing, what you're witnessing, what you're researching, what you're teaching, um, how are you, how are you uh, sustaining your hope?
1: <laughs> well, I pretty much work out every day, try to play some music. <laughs> <laughs> Because, <laughs> <laughs> <Wow. laughs> you know, this is, these folks aren't going to kill me out here Yeah, um, I mean, it, it's 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 deadly And we know that the stress and strain of white supremacy is deadly for our people uh, And so if I want to live to keep fighting this fight I'm going to have to take care of myself in the meantime
0: you, I better get your playlist in I need to, I need to listen to what you're <laughs> listening to <laughs> uh, Whatever Khalil's listening to, I want some of that I'm trying to sustain my hope as well His name is Khalil Gibran Muhammad uh, He is the fourth. Foundation foundation professor of history race and public policy at the harvard kennedy school he directs the institutional anti-racism and accountability project and is the former director as i said earlier of the schomburg center for research in black culture in new york city harlem to be exact uh, always honored to be in dialogue with him he's the co-host of a podcast called some of my best friends are dot 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 he <laughs> is one of my good friends and i've been honored as always to be in dialogue with him khalil thanks for the time sir i appreciate you brother Thanks so much, Tavis. Keep doing what you do. Likewise, my friend. Good to have you on. Uh, when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports, the next voice uh, you will hear, as they say in the church, the black church, is that of Les Brown with his uh, continuing month long radio residency. You've got to be hungry with Les Brown. Today's topic your obsession becomes your possession. Les Brown, in a moment on KBLA Talk 15.8.